Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Previously on Mentally Yours. I've been on pretty much every type of antidepressant there is, um, at least like the SSRIs. And there'd be various versions of side effects. So when I was on Paxil from like eight to 12, I did put on a lot of weight there. And I think also again in college, I put on some weight. And then I had been off of meds when I was 21. And then like, I guess maybe almost a year and a half ago now, I was in a bad place and I just wasn't addressing, you know, I wasn't taking care of my mental health and I sort of needed some help. Um, and I went on Zoloft. Okay, so before I say anything, I will say that like, um, yeah, I'm like, I'm internet famous for being a poet, which means that I'm still less famous than any cat. You know what I mean? Um, so I just I just need to keep it in perspective like that. Uh, but it's also I've gotten used to it now, right? Because um, it was it, I first went viral about five years ago, and it was it was really overwhelming for the first couple of years because suddenly everybody knew I was very mentally ill. <laughs> Where before, like you know, I'd been at slams and I'd, I'd done poems in front of people, but obviously it was limited to like an actual audience of people that I could see and interact with, and now suddenly. People were coming up to me randomly, like in coffee shops or on the street, or like in airports, saying, "Like, hey, I know you're totally crazy. Like, do you want to do you want to tell me about it?" <laughs> I'm like, "No, I don't. I already di- I already did. I told you about it on the internet. Watch it there. Goodbye." <laughs> so I'm get I'm used to it now, but it was it it made me really agoraphobic for a couple of years. Um, so OCD, it's something you have, but also the name of probably your biggest poem. Yeah, um, the one that kind of made you internet famous, like you say. Would you mind telling us a bit about when you were first diagnosed, how it affects you now, and basically how you're doing right now? Sure. Um, I was first diagnosed when I was 11 years old. Um, I'd always been a, a weird, rigid child. You know, I just had, I was very particular about things, but it got to a point where um, I'm starting to have very obvious ticks. You know, I like I had a head tick um, and was doing a lot of hand washing, and my mom was like, 
we got to get this kid checked out. So, uh, you know, she took me to a psychiatrist who later diagnosed me with bipolar disorder, interestingly. But the psychiatrist is like, yep, you have OCD. Shows up, you know, normally between about 10 and 11. Enjoy yourself. Uh, and so I just went to a ton of therapy throughout uh, my teenage years, most of which has not – I wouldn't say gotten rid of, uh, but given me the tools to handle a lot of my tics. Like I still have the obsessions and, and the, the desire to do all that stuff. But I have I have the coping mechanisms and I've done so much EMDR that I, I don't – I can normally resist doing them, which makes it easier to not do them later. You know, uh, sometimes it's still, I'll still, I still have a head tick and I'll still have to wash my hands a lot whenever I'm really stressed or something like that. But most of the time, yeah, I've just done so much work on it that it doesn't take up hours of my day anymore. What's EMDR? I forget what it stands for. (laughs) Um, But it's a, it's a type of therapy. It's effectively guided meditation. Um, So effectively, we'll be sitting in therapy and the therapist will ask me, okay, picture picture a triggering event. You know, it's whether it's like touching garbage, then you got to wash your hand five times or whatever it is. Um, and then she'll have me like just keep that image, set it aside for a second and then have and then have me picture literally just a safe place. For me, weirdly, it's actually like this one time I was traveling in uh, around England with my family and we were in the Lake District. Uh, Love the Lake District. Li- yeah, yeah. And we were like on this boat and it was raining slightly and there were mountains around me. And so like we did this exercise that allows me to jump right to that safe place and effectively jump into a meditative place that allows me to stop myself from ticking. Um, so yeah, it's just guided meditation mm. designed to give you a way to reset your own brain. I wish I knew what it stood for. Should have come in prepared with that. And <laughs> I funny. didn't. So <laughs> you mentioned also before that now people kind of come up to you straight off the bat and say, you know, Oh yeah, mental health guy. Talk mm-hmm. to me about mental illness. Yeah. <laughs> um, how do you deal with that? Do you have like a set response now or do you just kind of do it by, by ear? Um, I used to have set responses. I used to have just particular things I said, but it started to feel really disingenuous when I was just saying the exact same thing to everybody because it felt like I was just having a fear response and I wasn't actually like listening to or interacting with anyone. So what I've really started doing is somebody said, somebody will just say like your work really related to me. And I'm like, Oh cool. What's going on with you? And then I just let them talk, you know? And I think it's, it's been way more effective for me to just listen to people's stories with mental health and just let them tell me why they related to the work than me just coming out and saying like, this is exactly what I think you should do. Goodbye. You know? <laughs> How do you make sure you look after yourself when you're listening to those stories? Cause I think both of us written about mental health sure. and when you do that publicly, people tend to tell you some, it can be distressing right. stuff. How do I mean, you make sure that doesn't weigh too heavily on you? Well, I'd be interested in asking y'all the same question. Like, how do you run a podcast and talk specifically about it all the time? And like, it, I feel like it's probably the same. You know, I have, I effectively think of like me being on stage, me being at work, like that's Neil Hilborn. Mm-hmm. And then me every day, I'm just Neil, right? And Neil Hilborn's great at dealing with people's stuff. He's really um, able to listen to people and be really empathetic, but not go too far into their emotions with them and mm-hmm. things like that. And Neil would totally lose his mind if he had to do that every day. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So I just found the part of me that can do that. And maybe it's unhealthy compartmentalization, but I think it hasn't hurt me yet. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll see in 10 years. But um, <laughs> I think if it works, keep doing cool, it. Cool, cool, yeah, great. Whatever. Excellent. Awesome. I mean, like, what do y'all do to, to decompress after after talking about mental health? Every I have to day. go home and just do something completely unrelated and okay. 
diffuse completely like after this I can't go because usually we do it in the evening I can't go straight to bed after that because I will just be like thinking stress stuff etc just taking breaks a lot of the time cool that's really interesting that you've you know you recognize that you have to do that oh yeah massively um because like I it's it's weird I I can definitely relate to what you said about sort of like being like performance Neil and normal Neil because I love doing this podcast and I love writing about mental health stuff but it is definitely like there's you know, like journalist Yvette and then there's just me. Sure. So it's, it is two different things. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, the way that like, I'll talk about all different kinds of stuff because I have bipolar disorder and I'll like go on about that here. And um, yeah, again, sort of talk to readers about that stuff. But then actually in my private life, a lot of the times I don't have those conversations with, with friends or boyfriends, whatever, like until much later on, which sure. is bizarre when you think about the fact I'm literally doing this every week. I know, man. Um, <laughs> It is a bit odd, but so I suppose it is having that kind of divide, like you say. Yeah. That's something that I was going to ask you though as well, because um, you've written sort of beautiful, sort of intense things about um, OCD, bipolar disorder. How do you sort of prepare to go on stage to talk about those things? Do you have kind of a system in place? Like how, yeah, how does it even work? Um, well, part of it is that like the set, I've done the set so many times um, that I know I might not know exactly the specific words I'm going to say, but I know how the set goes and I know when I'm going to talk about what. And it, it's it, it's very practiced, you mm-hmm. know, so that feels nice. Like I just get on stage and I'm like, no, I can just hit, like um, I can just hit play on these poems. Right. And they just I've done them so much that I don't have to think about them anymore. They just come out of my face. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll do unscripted bits of banter. Where I'm talking to the audience or telling a story or whatever. But I, I know that. Anytime I'm floundering in a bit, I can just be like, okay, next poem. <laughs> um, and so, so it's all, that's also practice that it's not, it's not really hard for me to do. Um, and really like, it's, it's fun, man. <laughs> I feel like I'm not, I'm not good at many things, but, and I don't really experience joy that often, but that sort of hour that I'm on stage, I feel super competent and really happy for one of the only times in my life, you know? So I, I get excited about it, man. Like mm-hmm. I'm hanging out in the green room listening to, so normally like whatever city I'm in, I just like to listen to a band that's from there. Um, and so UK, it's been great because y'all have a lot of really good bands. Um, except in Nottingham, that was terrible. But uh, <laughs> sorry, we're, not, wow. we're gonna get complaints. <laughs> yeah, I, I told them that on stage, so uh, I've already gotten a lot of complaints. One of the things you mentioned uh, in your TED talk is that because um, you gave a TED talk, which was obviously on YouTube as well, yes. about OCD and sort of the performance side of things, um, is that your family's always been very open and supportive um, about mental health issues. Is that across the board, or is that just like your mom or? Um, it's my mom and certain aspects of my mom's family and I feel fine uh, putting my family's business out there because they don't pay attention to things I do. So, um, yeah, it feels like my uh, – most of the the mental health issues come from my dad's side of the family. Like my mom – my mom's side of the family has some stuff but it's not the stuff that I have. Um, and, uh, yeah, my dad's side of the family is not at all interested in talking about it. Like it was um, – I, I, my aunt – for instance, who I never met. She died before I was born. She, hearing stories about her, she was very clearly bipolar, right? And she very clearly killed herself. But they just say, oh, she died young. And I'm like, come on, guys. <laughs> like, can we can we talk about this even a little bit? Like, my dad's got really severe OCD. It makes him uh, – <clears throat> 
very intense workaholic and uh, really led to like our family falling apart but he, because he was not interested in talking about it or going to therapy at all. So yeah, that whole side of the family is very, very Germanic and repressed. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, basically if I talk about my mental health issues, it's really I'm talking to my, my mom and my brother and uh, a few aunts and uncles who mm. also get it, you know, mm. but yeah, the – no, and everybody on my dad's side of the family just don't speak to him. Although, I, okay, that's that's not totally fair. Um, his sister, Marilyn, and her whole family is they're really excellent, and we've had they've come to a lot of my shows. I don't need to be a total jerk. I sometimes forget that I'm related to them through that particular part. Anyway, I so. was going to say though, yeah, since becoming um, sort of famous from your poetry, have you had different elements? of your family sort of get in touch and then suddenly say, Oh, actually I've got this thing or my son's got this thing or. Yeah, man. Um, yeah. I found that weirdly, which was nice. Really? Yeah. It was really nice. Cause like one of not, not like a really distant relative, but like a relative that I didn't realize would, would want to talk about this. Just Facebook DM'd me. And that was really nice. Yeah. It's cause I'm, my family don't really talk about it, which again sure. is weird that I talk about it all the time, but we never talk about it when I'm at home. Like right, never. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, because that dynamic's already in place, you mm -hmm. know, and you develop into a person that talks about mental health, but not with them. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's really opened up um, a, uh, a lot of conversations with, because, I mean, I always talk to my mom and brother about it because we're all totally crazy people and we're all going to therapy. And it was just, it was just a, uh, we were a support system for each other. But, yeah, but from my more extended family, like, after... You know, people that I'd just seen at holidays and had nice conversations with, but about, like, the turkey, you know? <laughs> but it definitely after OCD blew up and people realized that, like, I'd t talk about my feelings professionally, you know, um, it really – the next time I saw a lot of extended family, it we actually sat down and they're like, hey, you know your your grandfather had blah, 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 and your aunt, you know? Um, and it really helped us talk more about our family history generally. So It's cool when your work actually pushes other people to open up as well. Yeah, it must yeah. be really cool yeah, experience. Yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a little terrifying, mostly yeah. fun. Um, <laughs> can we get a bit geeky? And, um, can you tell us a bit about the process of um, sort of creating one of your poems? Sure. Yes, I love craft. I'll talk. I'll talk. <laughs> man, I'll talk boring technical stuff. And then every are you day. all right to do us a poem? Yeah, totally. Is that, is that the technical term? Do us a poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I normally just say do a poem, man. Um, I don't okay. know. Some people say read. Some people say, I don't know, man. I'll just do poems. Slam, slam us. No, oh, that, no, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, slam me a poem. Yeah. Especially no, in, no, can no, I say no, it again? <laughs> it sounds terrible in my accent. Slam me a poem. <laughs> yeah. no, mm -mm. Um, I'll leave. Um, <laughs> So I feel like I have two distinct processes. I, uh, the first one is the one you always hope for, right? Um, I just have like that sort of that, that lightning bolt moment of inspiration where normally I'm doing something else. You know, I'm driving or, or doing dishes or in the shower or on my bike or whatever. And then my brain will be like, hey, here are a couple lines. You have to write these lines. You got to write them right now. Um, and that's and that's great. Norm you know, that just happens. The poem just kind of falls out wherever I am, you know, pulled over on the side of the road or sitting wet and naked on my bathroom floor, really whatever it is, right? Um, but you can't depend on those. They just happen whenever they happen. So uh, since I became a professional writer and started actually having to, to reliably produce new work, um, I just – when I'm not on tour, on tour, I just don't write things because eh, it's, just, it's just hard and I'm not good at it. But um, yeah, when I'm at home, uh, I just go – 
uh, I go to the coffee shop every day. Actually, so my wife has an office job, and so I just wake up with her and I drive her to work, and then suddenly I've tricked myself into being in clothes and out in the world. So I'm like, all right, cool. I'll just I'll just go to the coffee shop and I write till I get too anxious or agoraphobic, and then I go home, and then I make myself some lunch because it's normally around twelve thirty, uh, and then I just write at home till I go pick her up from work. You know, so uh, for me, like the the more common process is I just. I have to basically show up and bang my head against my notebook or computer screen until something comes out. Most of it's going to be bad. 95% of the poems are terrible, but I just have to – just got to keep writing them because some of them are going to end up being good. So yeah. I'm glad you said that because I think people – creative people don't really mention like – just have to sit there and just write or do whatever and mm. hope something sticks. Yeah, dude. Yeah, one of my favorite things about Philip Larkin, the famous mm. poet, is that Philip he. Larkin. Yeah, I went to Hull University. Um, oh, really? So, so yeah, it's, it's knowing that that um, he basically he made his um, his girlfriend. Well, when he died, he sort of told his his girlfriend that she had to burn all his terrible work because he'd he'd kept it all, but he was just like nobody's going to see this, <laughs> so you have to b- burn it all. Yeah. So there's like, but so the idea that he had these incredible poems, which obviously he did, but you also had this huge body of work, mm-hmm. which he was just like, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. Right. And, so, and yeah. you have to wonder, I always wonder what people's capacity for self-editing is. I, I have to mm. believe like Philip Larkin stuff is really, really linguistically precise. So I, I've got to believe that he kind of knew when something was going to work and when it wasn't. But mm. often I have a lot of stuff. Not to put myself on the same level as Philip Larkin even a little bit, but um, often I feel like I have poems that I think are garbage and then somebody comes up to me and they're like, Neil, this mostly is terrible, but these four lines are salvageable. So like mm-hmm. rewrite it around this when I would have just thrown out the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. so. Who do you have that sort of helps you with that? Is that your wife? Is that your agent? Um, it's my uh, my wife and a couple of uh, my friends who are also my publisher. It's weird that that happened we never thought this was going to be a thing, you know? Uh, so like uh, when, when button poetry first started and they, they were just taking videos of, of spoken word poems because there was no good media of it at the time. And then suddenly it blew up and YouTube gave them a bunch of money and now they're a publisher and they're my publisher anyway. Uh, so, uh, but, but before any of that happened, we were, we wrote together and we edited together all the time. So I just get together with my my friend Sam every couple weeks, and I'm like, hey, this is everything I've written. Is there anything good here? And Sam's like, most of this is bad. These lines are good. This poem's gold. Keep this. Uh, yeah, keep these four lines and rewrite them, you know? Um, so you need you need people who just, like, brutally, honestly edit you, who you're then not hurt because of those brutal edits, you know? How easy do you find it to share and have edited things that are very personal and emotional it's terrifying yeah i'm sure (laughs) i hate it um but it's got to happen you know and uh one of my my favorite feeling as a writer is like being on the sixth or seventh draft of a piece you've been beating your head against it Mm -hmm. for a really long time you've literally just like written tote like pages and pages of stuff and just deleted it because it's garbage because you just have to write to the point where you get it but that first time that it clicks right Mm -hmm. where it's like literally it's like this is a terrible metaphor, Neil, but it's not, it's not even that like you're trying to find the last piece of a puzzle. It's that piece of a puzzle has been like lost under the damn couch. Um, and you finally, you look under there for something else. And this puzzle has been like, you've been working on it for two months and you're like, the cat stole it. Bam, puzzle done. That's like that, that moment feels really revelatory. Uh, and it's, that's when I feel like most powerful as a, as a creator and author. I'm like, yeah, I can do anything. <laughs> anyway, sorry, terrible metaphor, but I'm I a liked writer. it. It's Thanks. good. <laughs> uh, 
Um, in terms of your own sort of mental health generally, how do you find the process of touring? Because you mentioned like being on stage, that's like golden, that's the joy, which is great. But how do you find the bit between, which must be quite boring, you know, sat in a bus? I like it, man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's terrible and I love it. Because <laughs> uh, I, I like having goals, you know, like when I'm when I'm just sitting at home and my job is right, that all feels very vague and nebulous. But when I'm on the road... It's it's all easy, you know. I'm like, no, what I'm doing today is driving to Chicago, and it's six hours to Chicago, so that's what I do today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I'm, oh, I only have an hour, so I'm just going to go to the venue and check in, and then I'm going to sound check, and then I'm going to do. The, so it's always mm-hmm. very obvious what the next thing is. Mm-hmm. I'm great with with structure. I don't if I don't have time to be anxious then I'm just not going to be anxious, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm going to go home after we're done here. We, you know, we're going to be here for a month total and I'm going to go home and not move for about three days. Uh, because yeah, my body's going to hurt and I'm going to like descend into a deep black depression. But, uh, <laughs> um, that itself is also sort of fun because I feel like I earned it in a certain way where normally when I'm, when I'm really down, I'm, I'm so, critical of myself. I'm like, why are you, why are you sad? Why aren't you moving? Like you, you don't deserve this, you know? And so, but because I feel like I'm, because I've been working for a month, I feel like I can tell the sad part of my brain, like, nah, dude, like we were, we were doing stuff. Shut up, eat the Chinese food, you know? I'm sort of struck dumb by a bit like that because you said a lot there. I mean, you kind of said, so you really think you'll, you will be depressed after this? Absolutely. Okay. That's um, interesting. I've been, I've been pretty manic the whole time we've been here. Um, not the whole time. Uh, it kicked in about four days into the tour, um, and I was super, super low the few weeks before we came here. I didn't know if I'd be able to do this tour. But yeah, yeah, it kicked in. Where were we? Birmingham, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I've been feeling like super invincible and I like, can do anything. And I know, I know in my head, I'm like, I know this is going to last till – actually, it'll probably keep going. I don't know. Anyway, who, who knows? It's hard to predict no, swings you, like yeah. that. But um, – yeah, but I, I just – I can feel it. I can feel it coming on that like after I don't have this fun thing that I love doing, I'm just going to fall on the couch and not move, you know? Mm. So – Do you have – like what are the support systems you have in place for when that kind of comes? Because um, I do – I mean I totally relate to that because, you know, I'm not going to say I'm the same, but I mean I do also have bipolar disorder. Yeah, yeah. So like I, I understand that you know it goes up and down. I'm doing this thing with my hand. No one can see it as a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just a little wave. I'm it's doing a nice like an up and down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what are the kind of support systems you have? I mean obviously you have your wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean she, she's my main support system aside from my therapist who I love very much. Um, but not in the same way. No, yes. I did, <laughs> I did fall in love with a therapist once um, and she definitely fired me. So yeah. uh, that was – that. <sighs> I mean, it was mutual fire. I don't know. Like I came – basically I showed up to to a therapy session one time with like a bunch of my poems that I wanted to see because – I wanted her to see because yeah. I think the flimsy reason was I was like, I want you to understand me better. But really I was trying to like make her love me because I yeah. thought I was good at writing poems. And then I like pulled them out of my bag and I was like, oh, no. I think I'm in love with you. <laughs> we got to go. <laughs> like, um, so yeah, that happened. But no, no, no. Uh, I don't – I'm not in love with this therapist like this so uh yeah so it's um so there's my wife who's obligated to talk to me and then there's my therapist who's financially obligated to Mm -hmm. talk to me uh and then um i have two rabbits that i love very much and we just uh yeah we just hang out and i let them destroy things in my house so that's 
Yeah, I, I feel like that. That's really everything I need. You know, I like I have friends that I like a lot, but um, I. Yeah, I feel like the the people that I really rely on is that that group of people, and I'm I feel really happy with that. Mm. You know. Also, it sounds like you've really learned to like be very aware of your own moods and symptoms and kind of self-manage. How do you get to that point? Um, I've been writing about it professionally yeah. for a long time. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, I think literally it's just uh, I'm – I <sighs> – I've just been critically analyzing my own mm. mental health state and my own feelings for so long that it just – I think that's bled out where I, I – literally, I've been editing poems about my mental health issues and mm. thinking critically about the way I express them. So it's been really easy to to take a step back and use the same editing brain to think about what's going on in my neo-emotional mm. brain. Do you think it's been helpful then? Absolutely, it has. Yeah. Um, so, sometimes it can get a little bit weird because I compartmentalize too much, but um, that's uh, that's why I have um, therapists and mm. a wife who gets me. You know, mm. um, because they can be like, "Hey, Neil, you're you're pushing stuff too far away. You got to actually yeah. deal with this and not just analyze it." Mm -hmm. So, do you mind me asking about meds? Like, have you taken meds? Are you on meds? What's I'm not on meds right now. Um, I have been in the past and. For me, meds have always been a a thing that I've just used to 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 reset almost. Like mm -hmm. it's I've been on meds in times in my life when I was just losing it too hard and couldn't actually get things done. Yeah, I I think they're great and I think that they're they're an amazing tool. And I'm just like I'm I don't super need them right now because I feel like I have I have the tools to handle what's going on right now but yeah um it's <laughs> it's always right there I know like if I start losing it too much I'm I'm on meds immediately so um mm. yeah man it's uh, really interesting to sort of hear that kind of perspective as well because I think a lot of people like who maybe don't have mental health issues that you know like you're either on them or you're mm. not on them or you know like or if you have a condition and you're not on them that must be like oh my god Right. What the hell's going on? Yeah. I know a few people, though, that use it kind of like, okay, things are good for now, but if it goes through a dip, mm. I can go back on them. It's fine. And that's quite a nice, healthy way to think about it. I yeah. Mm. I mean, I can it's, I can especially feel it. like I, I, my swings go way more toward depression than mm -hmm. they do toward mania. Um, yeah. And so like, but I, I can feel like. I'm just like I just pay attention to the sort of level of depression and like if it if it hits more than about like a 70 75 percent that's when I'm like give me the lithium do it now mm. uh, yeah <laughs> but even in super dark moments I can at least sort of self analyze and be like okay am I actually gonna kill myself or am I just thinking about it you know mm. um, and I feel like I've got the people that I can tell hey I'm not okay call a psychiatrist right now you know mm -hmm. um, so. Yeah, it's gotten scary a couple times, but uh, that's when that's what meds are for, you know. Can I ask, how did you like find poetry and get into it? Because it's quite a like niche thing. Sure, I so I started doing. I mean, I've been writing mm. poetry ever since I was a little kid. Um, I think I wrote my first poem when I was like eight or something. It was terrible. It was about the moon, whatever. But uh, <laughs> I started doing I started doing spoken word in college. Uh, I was probably about 19 as my sophomore year. And a guy who's now my friend at the time, mm -hmm. I hated him. But uh, <laughs> his name is Dylan Garrity. He's one of my best friends and he was a jerk back then. But I showed up to a meeting in my literary magazine and he, there was a spoken word poem. Uh, he wanted the workshop. 
And so he just like stood up in this literally meeting room and just like started doing – shouting this like terrible poem. Uh, it was so bad. <laughs> um, but – it, it was it was really it was a mind blowing moment because I didn't realize you could yell and do poetry at the mm -hmm. same time, so I was like, "Dude, what what are you doing?" <laughs> uh, and he was like, "Yeah, it's like it's it's spoken word, it's slam poetry." You ever been to a poetry slam? I was like, "No, what what is that?" Because I was I grew up in Houston, Texas, mm -hmm. man. We didn't have. It turns out we had art, but I didn't know at the time. I'm from the suburbs where nothing happens. So, um, but yeah, Dylan took me to some poetry slams in uh, in Minneapolis where where we lived and i yeah it just seemed fun you know it just i never thought like this is going to be my career mm -hmm. but it just seemed like an interesting way to think about poems and a new a new style a new genre to go after um so i just started writing poems and competing and then was yeah. there was there also an element of um well, you know, he's got off and done this terrible poem, and I can definitely do better than that. Sure. And then my poem, my first poems that I wrote were worse. So, um, <laughs> man, I was so bad. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It feels like most people, when they get into spoken word, they're bad for about a year, year oh, and yeah. a half. And I was bad for like three years. I just – I sucked, dude. <laughs> like I, I found recently some videos of those like really early poems and I deleted them, man. I was mm -hmm. like, nobody can know. Like this isn't even worth preserving for like a historical record. This sucks and I hate it. So uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, I thought – I was like, I can totally do better because it's literally like poetry slams are, are competitive poetry, right, which is just it, – it's an insane concept. I can't believe – that it's real, but really it's just a way to trick people into listening to poems. You know, mm -hmm. um, you turn a game, you turn it into a game, you say somebody can win something and then suddenly there's like, there's stakes, you know, but yeah, man, uh, I was bad. <laughs> did you start out writing about mental health stuff or? No. Yeah. Um, when did you, when did it change? It's probably OCD, man. Mm -hmm. um, everything else that I wrote was either like a funny poem that had hints about mm. like mental illnesses and things, but it wasn't, I, the narrative wasn't explicitly about mental health. Yeah. I wrote a bunch of persona pieces where I was doing characters that weren't me, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess OCD first came out, you know, weirdly OCD was a funny poem when I first wrote it, it went through about 20 drafts, but the original thing I was just hanging out with some friends talking about, I was like, Oh, I have OCD and asthma. Ha ha. Isn't that funny? And they were like, yeah, dude, write a poem. So the the first draft of OCD was it was a is a totally it was it was a fabricated breakup letter to a woman who broke up with me because uh what was the line it was a quote like I'm crazy and my lungs don't work right um and it was just it was just a bunch of jokes about the intersection of OCD and asthma like oh. <laughs> it was so stupid but as it went through an editing process and I brought it to my team and I brought it to my friends um we uh just edited it as the editing gradually happened, like some of the jokes fell out, um, the asthma almost totally fell out. Although weirdly, there's still remnants of it where there are lines like, uh, I say, like, I can't breathe because he only kisses her once and stuff about like, yeah. uh, oh God, the, the line where it's like, she can run away from this and I just can't like, cause originally there were a whole bunch of jokes about like jogging and how she liked jogging and I couldn't do it. So yeah, yeah man, it's weird. Like looking back at it now that like some of these lines that really hit people are like lines that were originally stupid jokes, mm -hmm. right? So, so yeah, I think literally that process of editing it and going through like 20 drafts was me finally coming to terms with 
doing some actual confessional poetry and really mm-hmm. talking about what I was going through. Weird. I hadn't actually thought about that. Um, cool. All right. That's, that's a weird story I just told about myself. So yeah. <laughs> How did it feel when you got to that point? Like, did it feel like, wow, I should have been doing this the whole time. Did it feel scary? Awkward? Yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah. Um, and the, uh, the first time I really put that poem out in the world, I, I, I wrote it so uh, you can have poetry teams and they're gigantic mm. poetry tournaments, which is – I can't believe when – I, when I think about it outside of myself, it seems crazy. But I, I was on a team from my college. We were going to the College National Poetry Slam and uh, it was like my senior year in college. I was about to graduate and I wrote it for, for that competition basically. Mm. And yeah, everything else that I'd done before was like funny or loud or weird um, and that whole competition was super intense personal narrative confessional stuff the whole the whole tournament and that's that's when it really clicked for me that that's what i was like supposed to be writing you know uh i granted i still i still write a lot of funny poems i still really enjoy humor but uh but yeah it seems like that's when it clicked with me that the my work that audiences connect with most is the stuff that's just honest personal narrative What's it like having people get your words tattooed on them? Because <laughs> it seems to happen a lot. Yeah. That, that, is that yeah, a big thing? A thi- like, yeah, honestly, man. I've considered it, but I can't ever settle on fonts, which is why I don't get words. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Never get no, word man. tattoos. For me, just... for me, it's all pictures. Um, yeah, all pictures. I, yeah, fonts are I, – I, I have like a, a little bit of writing, but it's all like – incidental to the tattoo and so it was, it was obvious immediately what the font was supposed to be and yeah. things like that um but uh i mean a lot of people asked asked to get it in my handwriting and mm-hmm. i'm like guys my handwriting is terrible like don't you like haven't you seen any any of it, it it's really bad you also say like hey tattoo artists hate when you do this i want you to know <laughs> um it's like my tour manager mark he used to he used to be a tattooer and um he's like dude just like tell him to get a real font i'm like i know i try but they want it they want it in my handwriting so yeah but like ultimately people can get whatever tattoos they want and i can shut up you know but uh it's yeah it's that's been another thing that i just put on neil hillborn like neil hillborn can deal with the fact that yeah. he wrote something that people want to get a tattoo of and neil would get super overwhelmed if he ever thought about it too much <laughs> so okay. so do, so, sorry, you do you know. have tattoos then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a, I got a bunch of them. So have you got any of your own lines tattooed <laughs> on you? <laughs> I mean, uh, why not? Sure, sure, sure. Um, I, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't like myself that much. Um. <laughs> no, I was joking. Although I think that would be sure. quite. I think that would be quite funny. You're, you're right. Have a whole poem like round your arm. Yeah, I, I think I, I have considered often. There are a couple like really old poems that are just sort of in jokes uh, with my friends because they're the only. You know, there were no videos. Are the only like. Uh, only maybe 20 people ever saw him, but uh, there's some like really funny lines that we still quoted each other. So I yeah. might do something like that, but I wouldn't get like serious one. Because <laughs> I feel like it's too risky. Like writers hate their work yeah, a year yeah, yeah. after writing. Oh it. yeah, that's true actually. Yeah, yeah. 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 So maybe like five years time, we just be, oh my God, uh, I'm really, you know, sick to death of that one. I yeah. mean, I got a bunch of terrible tattoos. So, like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not worried about that. Um, I have bad taste in tattoos, but I have good taste in writing. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I'd probably just hate anything I wrote. <laughs> Are there lines that people get most often, lines that you kind of knew would resonate when you wrote them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's – I don't often have that moment when I'm writing, mm-hmm. like, oh, I nailed it on this one, yeah. right? But, uh, yeah, the, the I think the line that people get – the most often is the last line of my poem, the future, um, or the line specifically, um, I saw the future 
And I sometimes they get so the line goes. I saw the future, comma. I did, comma, and in it I was alive. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll they'll elide the I did. But mm-hmm. anyway, whatever. I don't care. Editing's great. Cool. So uh, yeah, I would say that's that's the most common one. And that's yeah, that that's the one where like when I was writing the poem, I like I mean it's the last line. It's always been the last line of the piece from the yeah. very first draft. So yeah, when I wrote it, I just like I literally threw my pen across the room. I was like, yeah, I did it. Uh. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um. Uh, yeah, that one. I, I nailed it on yeah, that one. Yeah, I think I expected that. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a good vibe. Yeah, man. I've been hearing that the world is ending. I've heard it so much these days that I can either completely ignore it or never leave my house again. That is, if I actually left my house for things that don't directly enable me to keep my house. See, I've been thinking about driving nowhere. I've been thinking about becoming a box inside a locked room, inside a dark house at the dark end of the street. I want to go away until I'm gone. It takes so much less energy to not exist than it does to exist and get burned. I've been burned so much, I'm not me anymore. I'm a stupid puppet version of me. I got strings that lead to nowhere. Nothing is pulling on me. I wish someone would drag my hand out of hiding and sign my name on the dotted line. There are days when I can't find the sun, even though it's right outside my goddamn window. When getting out of bed feels like the key in the doomsday machine so on those days this is what i tell myself whatever you're feeling right now there's a mathematical certainty that someone else is feeling that exact thing this is not to say you aren't special this is to say thank god you aren't special i too have kissed no one good night I've launched myself from tall places and hoped no one would catch me. I've ended relationships because suddenly I was also exposed, but isolation is not safety, it's death. Even no one knows you're alive, you aren't. If a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, it does make a sound, but then that sound is gone. I'm not, I'm not saying you'll find the meaning of life in other people. I'm saying other people are the life to which you provide the meaning. See, we're wrong when we say, I think, therefore I am. The more we say it, the more it sounds like, I think, therefore, I will be. You can't think your way into a full table. You can't think and make walls and a roof appear around you. I have thought and thought myself into corners made of words and nightmares. And what has it gotten me but more thoughts? A currency that only buys more currency. So please, if you want to continue existing, do something. Learn to make clouds using only your breath. Build a house, even if every wall leans to the left. Love it anyway, just like a season, just like a child. Love how you hate yourself sometimes, because at least there's still something to hate. I know how easy it can be to think and keep thinking until you are the last person left on Earth, until the entire world becomes no larger than the space between your bed and the light switch. But I hear the world's ending soon. When we go, and we're all going to go, I will be part of it. Thank you. Yeah, man. <laughs> totally. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Thanks. Thank you so much. Of course, man. Thank you. So this is goodbye from mentally yours. So go away, enjoy your day, get on with all your chores from mentally, 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 mentally. mentally. Mentally yours. Mentally.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.